Genesis chapter 3, and today we will be looking at verses 8 through 13. I know that we have touched upon a few of these verses already, but not in the detail that we want to today. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Speaking of Adam and Eve, it says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is it? What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Shall we pray? Father, once again, as we come to your word, we ask that rather than we try to figure these things out ourselves, that you anoint and bless us with your Holy Spirit that we may understand from your heart and from your mind and from your perspective, Lord, what these words mean and how they are to encourage our lives to trust in you in all things. We turn to you now, Lord God, to speak to us, to open our eyes if they are blind, to open our ears if they're not hearing what you're saying and to open our hearts with life so that we might be alive in the truth of your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I would really be surprised if someone in this place today could admit to never having played the child's game hide-and-seek. I'm sure that all of us in, in some form or another have played that game. Now, the game is not one of any great sophistication. I mean, there are no discs to insert, no joysticks to manipulate with blazing thumbs, no screens to mesmerize the viewer. It's just a simple game of one person counting, let's say, to a hundred and and doing so with their back turned to others who scatter, uh, looking for a place to disappear from that one person's sight until when the counting is done, turns to find where everyone's hidden before they get back to home base undetected. The game, without even knowing it, teaches some very basic principles that actually line up to some degree with the Word of God. Think about these, this for just a moment. The better player of hide-and-seek, the better player of hide-and-seek 
is the one who can best hide, conceal themselves, and deceive without revealing their whereabouts and getting caught. That's the best player. Conversely, the more innocent a person is, the harder it is for them to hide or to deceive. Ever seen a little boy or a little girl when they finally come to learn the game of hide and seek? And you tell them a little bit of how it's played. They're still in that sense of innocence in their lives. But you got to go hide. And so they go and there's a little thin pole and they stand like this. It's as if I'm hiding behind this microphone. You got the picture? Isn't that interesting? The more innocent a person is, the harder it is for them to hide or to deceive. Why? Because their policy in a word is openness and honesty. Now, one major connection that this all has with the origin of man is that sin, when introduced as it was, has brought about the deterioration of all that was created. It did not begin, as some people believe, It didn't begin a process of evolutionary progress where mankind is becoming better and wiser and in effect more humanly moral. No. What we have observed over the thousands of years that man has existed that man has gotten worse morally. And so this again gives humanistic, atheistic evolution religious overtones because you really have to believe with faith that man is getting better. Now the fact is, when Adam and Eve, following the acts that led to their fall from grace, what we've been studying for the last three weeks, or four weeks, following those acts that led to their fall from grace, they heard the voice of the Lord when walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then they fled. And then they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. And this indicates that for the first time in their lives, they feared God. For the first time in their lives, they feared God. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about the fear that the Bible teaches us we're, to, we're supposed to have, the fear of the Lord. Because the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowledge. To fear Him with awe and respect and reverence. Adam and Eve, I know, had that built into them when God created them because they were in a perfect environment and they themselves were created in the image of God and they had that perfection built into them. But when they sinned, something happened. And they began to fear God as if fearing Him in terror. Before they had fallen in sin, The voice of God in the garden had been their joy and delight. How could it not be when the one who created them and made them the way he did would spend that time with them? We don't know how long it could have been. It could have been days or weeks, even maybe a couple of months or so. But in any event, whatever the length of time was, they had a communion. They had a a, a fellowship with God. What we call in in the Christian church today, koinonia, from the Greek word that deals with sharing and fellowship. They had that with God in the garden. So God was a joy and delight to them there. but, But we would certainly have to surmise, but with certainty, 
that their daily quiet time with the Lord had been the best time of their day. Wouldn't it be for us who love God so much that the best time we have in the day is not so much the the time we spend with the people we love, even though that's a good time. The better time is always with God. The better time is always in communion with Him who created us and knows us better than we know ourselves. But now, because of their foolishness in disobeying God, Their minds were darkened by sin. And if you remember last time, I I mentioned that uh, that there had to have been some kind of a glory that covered them. So much so that nakedness was not a deal, not a big deal for them. They were covered in the glory that God had created for them as perfect human beings that, that he created in his image. But as soon as that sin was committed... As soon as that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was eaten by both Eve and by Adam, they lost the glory. The glory was gone. We could even say Ichabod. The glory departed. They saw themselves now in a way that made them ashamed. And so they imagined that they could hide from God. You see, you can only imagine that you can hide from God because the reality is you can't hide from God. I've often been, you know, curious and maybe just a little bit interested in John Lennon's desire of writing a song as he did, Imagine, to try to tell people, you know, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell, imagine there's no war, imagine there's no, none of these things. Eventually what he's saying is, imagine there's no God. But see, the whole thing is, the reality of what he was saying is, you have to imagine it because the fact of the matter is, there is a God, there is a heaven, there is a hell, there are the things that are happening. And so you can only imagine, if you don't want to believe in God, then you can only imagine it. But see, the fact of the matter is, you can't hide from God. And so they had to imagine that they could hide from God. But the fact that they felt shame... And what they had done demonstrates for us that there was yet hope for their salvation. Now, I want to repeat that thought, because I don't want you to miss the understanding here. The fact that they felt shame at what they had done demonstrates for us that there was yet hope for their salvation. Because you see, when sinners feel no guilt or shame, when people have no remorse whatsoever in doing things that uh, dishonor God than doing just evil and wicked things. When sinners feel no guilt or shame, there can be no remedy but judgment and condemnation. But our text tells us that they feared when they heard the voice of the Lord God. And while we know that the word of God is given to men for guidance and comfort, and understand this, they didn't have a Bible like we have today, they had God himself. So every time God spoke to them, he was speaking his word. That's pretty simple to understand, isn't it? And every time God speaks, God doesn't waste words. Whatever God says, he says with purpose and with meaning, especially to those who are with him and walking with him and fellowshipping with him. So listen, when God and the word of God is given, it is usually given to men for guidance and for comfort. Then it can also be used as well in our day and time for what? For the conviction of sin. He did it in the garden, as we'll see in a moment. 
He does it for us as well. Paul in Romans chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law. Now, stop for a moment and realize this. If we talk about the law that Paul is mentioning here, is this not part of the word of God? Is this not the word of God, the law of God? So he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So that part of God's word is that which reveals to us the knowledge of sin. And therefore brings to us a conviction of that sin before a holy God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, which literally means it is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now notice, for doctrine, of course, the teaching, for reproof, to reprove us of sin, uh, for correction, to correct us from the things that we've done that are wrong, and then for the instruction in righteousness to bring us back on the right path with God so that we can be complete and perfect in the ways that God wants us to be. Now, it's quite interesting to me that the Lord had no obligation to redeem Adam or any of his offspring. And again, I want you to to take note of that thought. The Lord had no obligation to redeem Adam or any of his offspring. And that's including Eve. It is also significant. Now understand this. It is significant that when Satan led the rebellion of angels, those who sinned were immediately cast out of heaven and were at once condemned to eternal punishment. No provision was made for their redemption whatsoever. No appeal for repentance was ever issued to them, to those fallen angels. No redeemer was sent to save them. They were instantly sentenced to hell. Now, think about it. God could have done that with humanity. Now, humanity at that time was only two people. That's it. But God could have done that to humanity. He could have done that with humanity and no one could have ever questioned or faulted his justice and his judgment. God gave them an opportunity to receive everything that they needed in the garden because he gave them everything in the garden except for one tree. Choice was given. The opportunity not so much to choose wrongly, but the opportunity, the great opportunity to choose what was right and what was good. Remember always that amongst all of the trees that were free to be eaten from was the tree of life. They never got to it. And as we'll see later, God will have to protect the tree of life from them. And we'll explain why later. But God could have done this with humanity. In fact, think about this for a moment. And I don't mean to be harsh here. And I don't want God to appear harsh. But he owes no one mercy. He owes owes no one mercy. And yet, Scripture teaches us about the merciful character of our Creator God. 
He owes no one mercy, but yet he is a merciful God. Think about what is said in Nehemiah. Now, I could share this particular thought from Exodus and Deuteronomy and many other places because it's, it's a continuous uh, uh, a reminder to, uh, to the chosen people of God in the Old Testament that uh, God is this way. But I choose to, to show you from Nehemiah chapter 9 what is said. Because it is actually coming from a prayer given by the high priest as they are now dedicating the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And they are confessing before God. And notice it says in Nehemiah 9 verse 16, part of this prayer. But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments. This brings us all the way back, not so much to the fathers that sinned against God, but it can also take us all the way back to Adam and Eve, because they also disobeyed God. But nonetheless, they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks, hearkened not to thy commandments, and refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But notice this phrase, but thou art a God ready to pardon. And that's why I wanted to read this, because of what it says about God, ready to pardon ready to forgive, ready to be uh, uh, forgiving and gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. He did not forsake them. That's a merciful God. Even if he doesn't owe us mercy, he's ready to pardon. He's ready to forgive. And in his wondrous, amazing grace, the Lord had planned before the foundation of the world to redeem an immeasurable, a countless host of humanity from their own sin. All stained by the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. All of us in this room, all of us stained from that sin. All of us a part of that immeasurable and countless host of humanity. The plan was already in the mind and heart of God from the foundation of the world and even before because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 he says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us notice he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ that's in a tense that says it's already been done he has blessed us already in heavenly places in Christ and notice verse 4 according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1-1, God had the plan. Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Once again, we turn to Paul speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Notice what Paul tells Timothy here. He says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Now notice this. Who saved us, or who hath saved us, and called us with an only calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross for you and for me, what he did is so significant that we should never forget on that cross, Jesus abolished death. Where did death begin? When man disobeyed God. The death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ point us all the way back to this chapter. You see now how pivotal chapter 3 is. Why we're spending so much time in it. Honestly, I've got to tell you, I'm not doing this to help to try to help God help you with your patience, okay? When are we ever getting out of Genesis chapter 3? Don't worry, hopefully we'll be out before the rapture of the church. We'll, we'll do our best. Okay. Now, the outworking of that plan begins right here in chapter 3, and it is important that we know the foundational truth as we continue through this portion of the text. And here's another thought I want you to, to think about very carefully and, 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 and considerably. And maybe it's not just a thought, but maybe for, for some of you it's a needed revelation that we need to ponder. And here it is. That while Adam and Eve were hiding, think about this. While Adam and Eve were hiding, the Lord God was already seeking them with merciful intent. The Lord God was already seeking them with merciful intent. Let's look at verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Where art thou? God knew exactly where Adam was. I, I, I know that we all know that God knew where he was physically. So God is not asking this question for his own information as if God didn't know. So remember that. He's asking the question for Adam's sake. Where are you, Adam? Because you know the answer to that question is that Adam was lost. Adam was lost. You know, there's a deep and thoughtful biblical illustration attested to here. That because of sin, there is no one who seeks after God. God knew exactly where Adam was. And God wanted Adam to know where he was. He was lost. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Adam, with me? Where are you with my command? Where are you with my word? You see, that same question can be asked to each and every one of us here. Where are you with my fellowship? Where are you with my devotion, with your devotion to me? Where are you in your prayer life? Where are you in your time of reading my word? Where are you in your time of serving me? Where are you? You see, the question isn't for God, it's for you and for me. Where are we? But you see, as I said, sin, and because of that sin, Adam isn't seeking God. 
So that's a, a biblical principle that's, that's illustrated here. Because of sin, there is no one who seeks after God. This is, again, something that is, is confirmed in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, where it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I know that in a room of this size, with the number of people here, there may be some of you that don't even believe in God. You just kind of come and you, you, know, you continue to hold on to your belief that there is no God. Well, let me tell you something, but God says, you're a fool. I'm not telling you that because I can't tell you that, but God can. And he says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. They, there is none that doeth good. What, does, what, what is the good that we can do? Well, certainly we can seek after God. But notice verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. What's the, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the answer here? In other words, what's the, uh, the implication here? Of course, verse 3, they're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not even one seeking me. Now, please understand that I'm not talking about people who are believers in Jesus Christ today. Because I know one thing. When we falter, when we fail, the Holy Spirit convicts us to the extent that we begin to seek after God. But for those who are totally apart and totally uh, separated from God, not really seeking God. Now, there are seekers, of course. People seek always some way to feel better about the fact that they're sinners and they don't really want to you know, so, uh, know God. So they, they look for other types of religions. Maybe they can feel better. But you see, the Christian faith is one based upon the word of God that says, listen, you don't see God. God is seeking you. And you need to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. When, you, when God puts you in that position, all of a sudden, if you begin to truly seek God, you will. But in and of yourselves, in and of ourselves, we didn't seek after God first. As a matter of fact, Rome, uh, Romans chapter 3, Paul again says in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. By the way, I want to remind you, we're in the book of Romans. We just started our, uh, our second uh, study this past Wednesday. So this coming Wednesday, we'll continue on. But we're studying through both of these books together. And it's, it's an amazing thing how God has put that together for us to, to read and understand. But in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul says, as it is written... Quoting from this particular passage, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way. Uh, they are together become unprofitable. Unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Again, there is that distinction between those who believe in God, those who trust in God. Even when we falter, we are given the opportunity through the conviction of the Holy Spirit to return and to seek God. And of course, we know that God will answer and will be gracious. But it's also very clear that God is near to all who call upon him. God is always near to those who call upon him and that men are encouraged to seek the Lord. God wants men to seek the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 4.29, it says, But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Now, interestingly enough, that is given as a word to the, uh, to the chosen people, to uh, to Israel and the Israelites. But then in Isaiah 55, verse 6, it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. So the encouragement is to all 
for all men to seek the Lord. Because when you truly begin to seek the Lord with your heart, then you're going to find him. He can be found and he may be found. And then Paul would say in Acts 17, verse 27, speaking to the Athenian philosophers in Mars Hill, he says to them that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So God is encouraging man to seek him. And it's just strange about what happened in the garden, because the question that God asked, where art thou? was not one, first of all, of angry interrogation. God was not being angered or, or, you know, in a wrathful situation there with Adam. That's not how he asked the question. Because the Lord doesn't ask questions as if he needs information from anyone again. Anytime the omniscient, all-knowing God asks questions, it is for our own good and to give us the opportunity to face facts, to be honest, and to confess our sins. That is when God begins to ask ask us questions. Where are you? What are you doing with me? What are you doing with my time? What are you doing with my gifts? Face the facts when God begins to ask these questions. You You might be here today because God is wanting you to face those facts in your own life. But this was not the question of a cruel master, but of a broken-hearted father speaking in love to his wayward children. He was speaking in love to Adam and Eve, but he was calling out for Adam, the one he created first, the one he created in his image. And the Lord knew where they were. Oh, by the way, Psalm 44 Verse 21, something that we need to remember always. That God knows the secrets of our hearts. Psalm 44, 21 says, Shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. So there's nothing that you can truly hide from God. You can hide it from anybody. You know, you can hide things from me, I can hide things from you. But you know what? God knows. We can be so deceptive on the outside. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm great, I'm great. But inside you're not. You know, we we do that a lot, don't we? We have to be careful about that because that's lying, I guess. Some people are just afraid that somebody's going to say, oh, come on now, you're just, you know, you're confessing negatively. Wouldn't God just want us to be honest and open? But God knows the secrets of our heart. And again, the Lord knew where where Adam and Eve were, but he he also knew. He also knew that there was a gulf that had been made between himself and man. There was a gulf, a gap, a chasm, as it were. A chasm that he alone would have to bridge. God would have to do it because man lost all all of his spiritual faculties. They became spiritually dead. And they wouldn't be able to do anything. God, in fact, was protecting them in the garden all through this chapter. God would have to bridge the gap. And if we know anything about what God has already done, we know one thing. He bridged the gap between man and himself with the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the true bridge. 
But even more than that, he bridged the gap with Jesus Christ, his only begotten son himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He bridged the the gap with his only begotten son, who came, took upon himself flesh, never sinned, but always gave the reflection of the Father, and he went to the cross and he died. He shed his blood for our forgiveness, and he rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death for us. He bridged the gap. And to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, the gap has been closed. You see, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, And believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, thou shalt be saved. Thou shalt be saved. And so God begins that process by confronting Adam and Eve with their sin. And look at verses 10 through 12 now. And he said, uh, Genesis 3, 10 through 12, and he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. Adam's responding to the question, where are you, Adam? I heard the voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said to him, who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? The man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. She gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now I'm going to say this so that you'll understand this, where the the force of what Adam said is. Because it's usually contrary to what most people think. This is what most people think the force of, 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 of the impact of Adam's statement is. That he would have said, the woman... Whom thou gavest to me, be with me. She gave me of the tree and I did eat. You want to know where the real force lies in the statement of Adam? It lies here. The woman whom thou gavest to me, with me. She gave me of the tree. And I did eat. Where's the emphasis now? Consider the progression of Adam's answer to the Lord's inquiry. He begins with explanation, continues with an excuse, and then he passes on an example. First of all, the explanation. Adam's answer can be broken down into these small phrases. The first part of his answer was, I heard, I feared, I was naked, I hid. Whether you realize it or not, The truth had to be dragged out of Adam. That was only part of the truth. That wasn't the full truth, was it? Where are you, Adam? I heard, I feared, I I was naked, I hid. See, what was wrong here? His whole being was bent in all directions. What needed to be asked is, 
Where was this bright and honest and straightforward and upright man who once walked the garden with his God in joyous communion? The one who had been created in his image and and bore the glory of God on on his person. Where was that Adam? So who was this now suspicious, devious, reluctant creature in the garden? Who is this now? Why could he not just come out and say, I have sinned before heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son? Why didn't he just say that? By the way, do you you remember whose words those were? I have sinned before heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son? Do you remember whose words those were? The words of the prodigal son. As he was putting together his own explanation for his father. But it would seem that at least the prodigal son was on the right track. He was ready to come and confess. But if you remember the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son never opened his mouth because the father saw him on the horizon and ran to his son. And before his son could even begin to offer his explanation, his father fell upon his neck, which doesn't mean he went in wrestling with him. He fell upon his neck to kiss him and to embrace him and to take off his ugly, stinky, dirty clothes and to put on good clothes and a robe upon his body and uh, shoes upon his feet and a ring upon his finger. To show the mercy and grace of a loving father. But this was Adam's explanation. I heard, I feared, I was naked, I hid. Adam was a fallen man giving giving all of creation its first demonstration of a fallen human heart. That is best place for us in the scriptures in Jeremiah chapter 17 verses 9 and 10 where it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it Adam was the first to demonstrate that kind of a heart but verse 10 of Jeremiah 17 says I the Lord search the heart I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing or of his doings That's the explanation. But then comes within that very same thought, the excuse. The excuse that Adam gives. Notice verses 11 and 12. And he says, well, who told thee? God says to him, who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, well, 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 the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now, the Lord went straight to the heart of the matter that Adam might confess his sin. He does that for us. Goes right to the heart of our matter so that we can confess our sin. But instead the man came up with a despicable, shamefully wicked excuse. And the excuse was, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now, finally at the very end of that statement he does say, well I did eat. But because of all of this other stuff before. Most people will say... That Adam blamed Eve first and foremost. But the fact is he first tried to blame God. 
the woman that you gave to be with me. Don't miss that point. Since that very day, man has tried to blame God for everything that goes wrong in our lives. And, and let me emphasize, they try to blame God. You can try all you want, but he isn't the one to blame. How often, even today, bad things happen, we blame God. Tragic things happen, we blame God. Have we ever thought to blame the devil? Or what about ourselves? Here's another first in the book of Genesis. The beginning of passing the buck. That's the blame game, you see. The blame game. We all sin, but when we sin, do we blame others? Or can we still give God glory by confessing to him without shifting the blame to others? Because you see, we all do sin, but when we do sin, we can still give glory to God by openly confessing without shifting the blame on others. You remember the issue with Joshua and Achan in Joshua chapter 7, verses 19 and 20? Listen to these words. Achan was withholding and, you know, and, and uh, you know, had actually taken some things that he shouldn't have taken and hidden them and all. But Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel. Notice the words. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him. And tell me now what thou hast done, hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua. And he said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. David, after his great sin with Bathsheba, would eventually do the same. As confronted the, uh, with uh, uh, Nathan, Second uh, Samuel 12, verse 13, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also has put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Now, we, always, we, we have to understand that, of course, there were great consequences because of what had happened. But nonetheless, there was forgiveness because he gave glory to God by confessing and saying, I have sinned against the Lord. Sin against, you know, we can sin against others, but we've sinned ultimately against the Lord. And when we confess that, God is given glory. Remember the exhortation given to us by the Apostle John in 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is the encouragement for us. Confess your sins because God is faithful to forgive and, and to cleanse us. And then, of course, in verse 10, it says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And, you know, that just takes us back to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 3. You know, the, the lies of Satan, the lie that he gave. Did God really say, no, 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 God is, God is a liar. That's what he said. So we make God a liar. We, we, we go back to Genesis 3 ourselves if we do that. By the way, I find it interesting that the Lord actually ignored the wicked inference made by Adam that he was responsible for human sin. 
the Lord ignored Adam's claim. The woman, you, God ignored it. And I bring that up because I want you to re- I want you to kind of ponder this particular thought. How many times has God ignored some of the dumb things that we've done? How many times has God ignored some of the stupid things we've done? How many times has God ignored the foolish things that we've said or done? It's getting worse, isn't it? Dumb, stupid, foolish. I'm not going on. I could add a few more idiotic words. How many times has God ignored those? Think about it. Maybe it's best if we not say or do (laughs) dumb things. But then Adam tried to blame his wife as well as part of the excuse. The woman that you gave me, she made me to eat. She was the one. And I did eat. But it's because of all of that. Because of you and because of her. You see. Now, Billy Sunday, uh, those who may not know, Billy Sunday was, a, was an evangelist preacher back in the early uh, 20th century. But Billy Sunday once said, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Just think about that for a moment. He said, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. You see, Eve gave Adam the fruit because the serpent deceived her. But that was no reason for Adam to disobey God. No reason for Adam to disobey. And so Adam sought to shift the blame, which led to the example that he gives to Eve. For in verse 13, we're told, The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me. And I did eat. The serpent. Will anybody say, Yes, it was me. The serpent beguiled me. Now, to be fair, some believe that when confronted by God, that Eve doesn't necessarily shift the blame when she admits the serpent deceived her and then she ate. I mean, this uh, much was, was true. She had been deceived and she did eat. The only problem comes when we fail to see that being deceived is sin in itself. That even being deceived is sin, if we follow through, is sin in itself. In other words, it is a sin to exchange the truth of God for the lie. That's Romans 1.25. It is a sin to exchange the truth of God for the lie. You've been deceived, but nonetheless... You've exchanged the truth of God. So nonetheless, Eve still sought to blame the serpent. I'm not to blame. He beguiled me. He deceived me. It's not my fault. I've said this before. In the laws of our, of our state and of our city and all, the ordinances and all, we find out very quickly that ignorance is not an excuse. 
we need to know. Eve knew, Adam knew. What the serpent was saying and what he was doing was to cause them to distrust and doubt God. Once they crossed the line, began to distrust and doubt God, they were sinners. So when people start making excuses, it is evident that they don't see the terrible nature of their sins or even want to confess them and to repent. If sinners can find some loophole, they'll run through it as fast as they can. I always remember the story of W.C. Fields, the old comedian from back in the early days of the 20th century. He was, according to himself, a an agnostic, possibly an atheist, didn't really believe in God, didn't know if God existed. But one day somebody who knew him saw him reading a Bible and they confronted him about that and they said, hey, I thought you weren't a believer, I thought you were an agnostic or an atheist. And W.C. Fields said to him, I'm just looking for the loopholes, just looking for loopholes. May I tell you there are no loopholes in the Bible. But there is a way of escape. There is a way of escape. Some people look for loopholes, but they fail to see that the Lord has always been the way of escape. As we spoke of and dealt with last time, I remind you of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. There has no, re- uh, no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with a temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Not only does he make the way of escape, the way of escape is the Lord himself. And for us it is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Psalm 71 verses 1 through 3 says, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust Let me never be put to confusion. Deliver me in thy righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline thine ear unto me (coughs) and save me. (coughs) Be thou my strong habitation whereunto I may continually resort. Thou hast given commandment to save me, for thou art my rock and my fortress. Lastly, Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36. Now remember, this is Jesus' uh, Olivet Discourse. It is a prophetic discourse. He is talking about the things that were to come, that are to come even for us today. Yet, nonetheless, I want you to listen to his language. He says, and take heed to yourselves. Not just to his disciples, but even to us. He says, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time... Your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, or which means carousing, uh, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. The day of Jesus Christ. He says, part of the problem today, so not so much just then, but even more now. It's more rampant now. The people want to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And they kind of figure, you know, well, if Jesus hasn't come yet, well, you know, I can still do a little bit of this and... And still kind of, you know, still kind of go to church and look good. Some people think that you come to church to look good. No, I tell you this. You, we, come to, we come to church because only God looks good. And he needs to be worshipped and glorified for that. 
Everything that Jesus Christ has done is what looks good, not what we've done. We don't look good in church. Well, you look pretty. And thank God you, you smell pretty too. But that's not what it's all about. We come to church to give honor and glory to the one who has done good for us. Jesus said, listen, lest at any time, you better take heed, lest at any time you're overcharged with this carousing, with this drunkenness and the cares of life, so that that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come upon all of them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. And he says, watch ye therefore. You know what? It takes vigilance to watch. It takes a real desire to, to, to believe God, to watch for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. Even Jesus himself says, you better pray that you be counted worthy to escape. Is it wrong to want to escape the things that are happening in this world and what's going to happen worse later on? Not wrong if Jesus said it's okay to be accounted worthy to escape. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He is the way of escape. His coming for the church is a way of escape, but we have to be ready for it. We don't want to be caught unawares. We don't want to be caught ourselves, catching ourselves being in one, you know, keeping one foot here and one foot there. No. We need to plant both feet firmly upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And he says that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. You can't stand before the Son of Man with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You have to stand with both feet on solid ground, Jesus Christ. So all of this should remind us that we are not to play games with God. We are not to play games with God. We're not to play hide and seek. And we're not to play the blame game. You see, God is merciful and gracious and compassionate, loving and patient. But he is always holy, holy, holy. He is righteous, he is just, and he is true. And may I say, Jesus is coming again. And we need to be ready for that. Are you ready? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, if you don't, you need to receive Jesus Christ right now. You need to bow your heart before God. And you need to pray from the depths of your own heart. And say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Acknowledge him. I'm not here to blame anyone else. I am the sinner. You remember now the, the parable that Jesus taught of the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector? There on the steps of the temple, the Pharisee in his proud manner would say, Lord, I am so thankful I'm not like that tax collector. And the tax collector at the very same moment is beating his breast to his face on the steps, beating his breast and saying, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Have you prayed and asked the Lord to forgive you of your sins? Have you prayed by acknowledging that you are a sinner? That's the point. Lord, forgive me. I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. And I desire today 
to have my heart changed so that I can live for you. I confess with my mouth, as your word says, I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that he's risen from the dead, that I might be saved. Give me a new heart, Lord. Give me a new mind. Give me a new everything because I, 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 the old is, is no good. I'm just trying to give you a pattern of what you need to pray from your heart unto God. But we need to do that right now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.